Greetings and welcome to Visibility with your host, Dr. Donna Maria Culbreth. You may call us to share your thoughts, pose a question, or to give a general comment by dialing area code 323-642-1562. And now, Dr. Culbreth. Greetings, everyone, and welcome to Visibility. I am your host, Dr. Don Maria Culbreth, and I am coming to you live as we do each Wednesday to talk about issues that are affecting girls and women of color in the millennium. So I hope everyone's having a really great week. Mine is going really well. Tonight, gang, we're going to focus in on colorism in the workplace. And for those of you who know me, you know that this is my baby. This is my area specialty um, on colorism and especially in the workplace. So let me give you a little bit of background on me and my work with colorism So before we move forward. For years, I worked in the legal field. And I also worked in consulting where I handled so many cases involving colorism. And it was during this time when colorism was an issue that many employers were like, there's no way that two people who belong to the same racial group or category who are both brown skin would ever treat each other differently because one is a little lighter and one is a little darker. So it was a big issue here, gang, and it was a problem. Understanding colorism, especially when we saw cases involving two black Americans or two Asians or two Latinos or two Indians, it was difficult for them to embrace the fact that, okay, if these guys belong to the same group, are you telling me that one is going to treat the other one Differently, solely based on the lightness or darkness of his or her skin. Yes, it did happen. So I can tell you, you know, go on forever and tell you some of the, what I would refer to as like really uncomfortable workplace situations in which I have seen both white, medium brown, brown, dark complexion individuals be victimized by acts of colorism. Likewise, as my dissertation noted, perpetrators also come in various hues. Often there's this big misconception that when colorism occurs and someone is treated either favorably or unfavorably because of the color of their skin, it's always a darker-skinned person being treated unfavorably or disparately. That's not always the case. And tonight what I'll do is we'll go through a little historical perspective to understand colorism, how it is in the workplace, especially intraracial colorism. And I'll go over and give the definition of colorism again so everybody's totally clear. And as a matter of fact, I have notes everywhere. Let me do that before we even get started. So on my website for the Interracial Colorism Project, 
which is colorismproject.com, there is, let me turn this volume up a little bit, there is the, de- the definition of colorism is on the website. So that we understand what colorism is. This is how it's defined. And I think this is the most comprehensive definition of colorism that I've ever seen. And I'm not saying it because it's on my site. Colorism involves distinctions that are based on skin color, white, medium, or dark. And those distinctions result in favorable or unfavorable treatment of individuals based on the lightness or darkness of their skin color, with its foundation deeply rooted in white supremacy, white superiority, white supremacy, white privilege, racism, prejudice, and stereotypes. Colorism is complex in nature. And I'll go on and explain to you later on from an excerpt from a colorism case study guide that I'll tell you guys about in a few as to why colorism is so complex. And if you quote me in any of this stuff or use my material, make sure you say this is from Dr. Colbert, okay? Because it is, it is in my book. Now, when we start looking at how colorism occurs, it occurs interracially. That means it's between a member belonging to one racial group and a member from an outside group. So let me give you a really a good example. When we see interracial colorism, that involves, let's say, for example, a white person treating a black person differently because his or her skin is dark and or white. And remember what I noted earlier. Colorism is not always where you see darker complexion people being treated disparately. I have worked on cases and investigations and consulting opportunities in which I've had cases interracial colorism where I would have maybe, let's say, a white employee treating a light-complexioned black employee disparately or unfavorably because she had a problem with the fact that this girl was light-complexioned and her skin was in such close proximity to her skin color, she had issues with it. We'll talk about that when we talk about the cases later on. So, and, and one of the biggest things, and this is what I came out with um, years ago after I conducted my study in 2006, was that I discovered that colorism is psychologically, emotionally, physically, and it's socially damaging to the well-being of its victims. And I'd never known anyone to say that before I, I, I came out with that years ago, but it is. If you think about it, and just imagine this, if you will, I'm going to use like the same type of scenario um, Matthew McConaughey used in the movie A Time to Kill. And you close your eyes and, and, and picture this. You're an employee in a work environment. Let's say that your skin color is a very dark complexion. You're the only black employee there. And you are treated dis- differently. You're, now remember, let's just say for the sake of argument, you are the only one with, let's say, the MBA. You excel at all that you do. You're at the top of your class. 
you're the best employee on board. You work in a team of five other individuals. However, being that you're the only black and your skin is very dark complexion, you're treated differently solely because of the color of your skin. So you're probably saying, well, Dr. C, what do you mean by being treated differently? Let me explain it to you. It can be this. Let's say that there's grunt work. As we all know, with every job, there's some grunt work that we don't like to do. This guy is the top one on the team, but he's constantly given the grunt work. He's talked to in a disrespectful manner. He is penalized if he's one second late from lunch or a minute where the other team members are not. So he kind of lets it go. Then, let's say they hire another black employee who is a light complexioned, same man as well. And he begins to notice the dark-skinned employee will name him John. The lightest-skinned employee will name him Steve. John begins to note, notice all of the members of his team are treating Steve much better than they're treating John. So he begins to note more and more, whereas originally he was thinking that he was being treated differently because he was black. Now, listen, it, that is still a possibility that he was being treated differently because he was a black man. Now, with Steve on board, and Steve is very fair complexioned, soft curly hair, say Sandy Brown curly hair. He identifies as being a black man. More and more as the days go on, John is beginning to notice how he's being treated so differently. Now that Steve is on board, he's been, he has noticed where they go to lunch with him, hang out with him in his office. They do weekend things together. He gets the best workload. John is still getting the grunt, grunt work. One day, he has a conversation with Steve, telling him about all how great things are and how everybody treats him and so on. So he decides to, to discuss his concerns with one of his team members who's kind of cool with him to a certain degree. And the team member just blurts out, not seeing anything wrong with what she was saying. And she mentions his skin color being such an issue for them. And the fact that he's so very dark that they're very uncomfortable just sitting next to him in a room in a chair. Whereas Steve looks more like them to a certain degree because his skin is much lighter. So therefore, they're treating Steve much better, or more, and let me correct myself, in a favorable light, whereas they're treating John in an unfavorable manner. You get it? An example of interracial colorism in the work environment. It begins to take a toll on John. Psychologically, he starts to question himself, his knowledge, skills, and abilities. He starts to feel less of a man. He's severely bothered. By accident, one day he happens to come across Steve's pay stub and realizes that Steve is making, let's say, $6,000 more than him. And Steve has zero experience. He's a new kid in the field. 
and he sees the issues, and he remembers what the coworker told him. So now we're looking at the psychological, then you know the emotions will kick in. Either John's getting angry, upset, he's going to be, you know, as the young kids say, he gets some type of feeling, feeling some kind of way, and it's bothering him. Physically, he begins to think, well, maybe I need to do something to make myself appear more appealing to them, where they would embrace me and accept me, perhaps if my skin is lighter. So he considers lightening his skin with bleaching cream. That thought alone in and of itself is an example of how the physical issues pop in when someone is victimized by colorism. The self-loathing, thinking that, you know, because of the way I look, I'll never be accepted in the corporate environment. My skin is too dark. My hair is not silky and straight. My nose may be too broad. Whatever those physical issues are, they can cause a lot of serious issues for the individual who is the victim. And then let's let's move on and let's look at the social well-being aspect of it. Remember, we're in the workplace. To a certain degree, you socialize with your coworkers. And I'm not saying outside of work, but within the work environment. You may have little small chit-chats, eat lunch together, maybe go to the cafeteria. Um, in meetings, before the meetings start, you, you, know, you sit down and you chit-chat, whatever. You talk by the water cooler. But the problem here is that no one ever talks to John except Steve, the other new black guy. So I just explained to you how interracial colorism works and how it affects the victim. And this is just like a real broad, you know, example, how it affects the victim psychologically, emotionally, physically, and socially. Socially, he's ostracized. He feels that he's all alone. And it bothers him because they won't embrace or let him fit in in that work environment. So we're looking now at the type of culture of the work environment that he's working in. We're looking at the behavior of his coworkers, his peers, you know, within the organization. We're also looking at the fact that, unfortunately, John does not realize that he's being discriminated against in, in, as far as the EEOC is concerned. And as far as Title VII is concerned, that they're violating Title VII. Because he doesn't know that to treat someone disparately, favorably, unfavorably, especially in the work environment, based solely on color, is a violation of Title VII. And we'll talk more about this in greater detail when we start talking about training in the workplace. But I can just tell you preliminary right now, all of my experiences of working in, in jobs, I never, ever, maybe was one place, I think, had any type of new employee orientation or training or continuing training throughout the year that included anything to do with color. And I always thought that was an issue and a concern in the work environment, but it was never there. So as I continued as a consultant in the field 
And because I had a legal background, I remember when I worked as a law clerk um, back in the 90s, I remember a case, I think it was a workers' comp case. But the case, I mean, it it really blew up. It was a big issue in the end. This is when I was in Maryland. And it involved workers' compensation. And I think the case was not reported or he was told to just go home. They docked him for the whole week he was out. Similar issue happened to another gentleman on the job who happened to be light-complexioned. He was injured on the job. They immediately filed the workers' comp case. It wasn't an issue. And I remember during this time, I was writing a, a memorandum of law for the attorney. And I remember meeting with the client and him telling me, you know, that what he had gone through, how he felt. And it wasn't until he, I think he said he read a book or he found some material that helped him to realize that what he experienced was color discrimination because of the color of his skin. And at that time, I was handling, I think, workers' comp and employment law cases. And I remember remember saying to the attorney, you know, there's a serious issue here. We have a Title VII issue. It's a, a violation of Title VII. This gentleman, you know, John Doe, was discriminated against based solely on his skin color because he is dark. So when he came back to the office, he brought the light complexion employee with him who collaborated, you know, basically said the same things that he had stated and explain and show the documentation of how he was treated so much, so, you know, differently, favorably, much better. Make a long story short, in that era when I was working as a law clerk, and I think this was the very first color case, color discrimination case that we dealt with, I remember talking to the attorney I worked for, and he was floored. He was he was really floored. He's like, you know, Don, I cannot believe this. I'm like, yeah. So I did the legal research, went, um, put together my little memorandum of law, pulled the cases up, and that is where my interest in colorism and color issues, you know, it just blossomed because I saw that not only were, you know, the attorney they were not familiar with it, and he was an employment lawyer, but It was a bigger issue, guys, in the work environment, in the workplace with peer coworkers, supervisors, managers, business owners, the VPs. No one even thought for two seconds that colorism or color discrimination did was occurring. And now here's the thing, guys. I believe, and no one can ever make me think otherwise, that they were aware that the interracial color discrimination was occurring when you had a white person treating a lighter complexion black person better than a darker complexion because we know historically that's always been an issue. And I'm going to go into the historical perspective too in a second, but let me finish my description of my definition of colorism. So we know what interracial colorism is. It involves a member of a racial group making a distinction based on the skin color of members belonging to a different racial group, i.e. white versus black. 
Indian versus Latino. The, you know, this form of colorism results again in preferential, prejudicial, disparate treatment of the victims. Now, when we start talking about intra-racial colorism, that is the colorism that occurs. It involves rather member members belonging to the same racial group. So you can be black on black, Latino on Latino, Asian on Asian, even white on white, because they do treat each other differently based on the lightness and darkness of their skin colors as well. So when we start looking at the interracial colorism discrimination, the interracial colorism is a big issue within the black community. And it's, it's so much more complex than interracial colorism for various reasons. And it also results in preferential, prejudicial, or disparate treatment of victims. So there's your, your definition of what colorism is. It is important to remember that when you're looking at color discrimination in the workplace, to understand how complex it is, number one, as well as the two forms, interracial and intraracial. And that's what is so important. But if we go back and we look at, you know, this colorism thing historically, I'm going to go back and just say we all know about slavery, what happened during the slavery era. I'm going to fast forward for you and go into Reconstruction. It was then during that era where we saw how everything had changed, of course, for black Americans. Black Americans then segregated themselves into societies and living environments where you had lighter skin living on one side of town, darker complexion living on the other side of town. This was an issue in school and education, um, jobs their social clubs, their churches. Of course, then it was easier for lighter complexion black to find employment as opposed to a darker complexion black person. And and this is where we also, you know, we learn more about the skin color test, the skin, you know, the test they use from the paper bag. We all heard about the brown paper bag test. We've heard about the flashlight test. And on the Colorism Project's website, we um, have a description there of all the types of tests that, we, that were believed to have been used in the, you know, certain times in history. And one of the biggest issues with those was that when they were being used, imagine this, guys. Imagine the psychological, emotional, physical, and social traumas that black people had to deal with in that era, especially so in light of the fact that, you know, slavery is over with. We, here we are black people, we're free, and now we are treating each other differently based solely on the color of our skin. But that was something that was ingrained from slavery with the blacks who, of course, the lighter complexion were always given the preferential treatment over darker complexion black this black slaves. So when we start looking at these these colorism tests, and I'm going to bring them up right now and talk to you a little bit more about them, but there were issues, like they had to think, and this is one I think I remember in Dr. Audrey Alyssa Kerr's book, The Paperback Principle. And it's important for I note this, that those tests were used both by white and black Americans to determine their race, 
you know, their social status, again, acceptance into churches, schools, clubs, associations, and in the employment arena. So if you want to get real details, look at Dr. Kerr's book. It was written in 2006, The Paperback Principle. Now, the interracial skin color test that we used was that they would look at the fingernails. So let's say, for example, we had blacks who were fair enough to pass. So those tests were used to determine if black people possessing more of the Eurocentric phenotypes, like, you know, the light skin or white skin or, or the light skin in closest proximity to whiteness, um, hair texture, nose, and lips, to determine if they were actually white or black. They used that test of this nature were used by white Americans to determine their racial identity, especially when it was questionable based on their appearance. So they used what were called, called the fingernail. One of them was the fingernail test, where they would look at the beds of the fingernails, and they would look at the color there. And based on the color, I think if I remember correctly, if it was darker hue, you were considered black. If it was more of a pink, then you were considered white. I think I may have that backwards. Um, then they had people who were called spotters. When we start looking at interracial skin color tests, you know, we had the comb test where they run the comb through someone's hair. If it could go through without getting stuck, then normally they were allowed to get into events or associate, associate with or socialize. <coughs> Pardon me. They had the flashlight test. And the flashlight test, you know, they would shine the flashlight on the wall and they would look at your features, at, you know, on the wall, your shadow. The blue vein test. We all know the blue vein test where they look through and see if they can see your veins through, you know, your skin. They have the color tax test and the door test. With those, with the door test, they would hang like a wood piece of wood that was painted a certain shade on a door. And let's say, for example, they're having events or a party. If the person going in or their date were light with the color of or lighter than the shade painted on that piece of wood hanging on the door, then they could come in. So those are just some of the examples. And it's important that we, we remember and understand how these were issues for black Americans, how we internalized and started using skin color tests, you know, to determine if we could or could not fit into their particular little social circles or societies or churches or whatever. So we know that black, because of the racism and how blacks were treated, we know that blacks who were, even let's even go back further, that before, I forgot, when we start looking at monetary values placed on light and dark skinned slaves back, you know, prior to, to reconstruction during slavery, lighter complexion slaves even, um, auction offered a higher dollar amount from the block. The work duties that were assigned in overall treatment of dark-skinned slaves were so different. They were treated so unfavorably. And Merito in his book noted that in 1944. So now we know that blacks possessing skin color light enough to pass for white, they were able to obtain employment outside the traditional blue-collar work, being, you know, the domestic domestic positions that they held. And although 
darker complexion blacks found it difficult to find jobs. But when they did find employment, they were paid significantly less in salaries than lighter complexion blacks working in similar positions. And Drake and Caton noted that in 1945. Um, so job opportunities were available for both light and dark skinned blacks, which the types rather of jobs that were offered, it further divided the community. As each skin color group then had to seek training and education for the specific industries industries in which they could find jobs. So that was an issue. What made things worse is when black Americans started internalizing this practice of light skin superiority and began to use that same light skin preference when hiring blacks. And Russell Wilson Hall noted that in their 1992 book, um, The Color Complex. When black Americans started using this same skin color stratification in, employment, in the employment arena and in their practices for hiring, that preference was still there for lighter complexion blacks over dark complexion of skin blacks. That, my friends, was interracial colorism. That's exactly what that was, even in that era. And what makes it so, I could just say, upsetting, imagine this in that era. And remember, for, do not for one second, you know, put out of your mind the psychological, emotional, physical, and social issues that were going on then. Colorism and being treated differently by white people and then of your own racial group of people. Imagine the traumas, the psychological, emotional, physical, and social traumas that people experience and what they went through. So, it, it, this happened, let's say, let's say, let me think about it. I think it was like over 40 years when we were talking about how black Americans were treating each other. And this is evidence. And, and here's the thing. There was a time when there was like a big issue, and I remember a colleague and I back in, I think it was, oh, 2002, had a real big blowout argument over this. And despite showing him the literature in the books that, you know, written back from that era, we got into it. So I did more research, and I found um, a discussion between Representatives Abernathy and Seller, who was the floor manager in the House of Representatives for the Civil Rights Act of 1964. Now, this is the conversation, so I'm saying this, reading this in quotes. Mr. Abernathy, now I would like to ask the chairman this question. Would the FEPC, the FEPC was the predecessor to the EELC, would they have the authority to correct employment discrimination among our, I'm going to say black, they don't say black, citizens in the District of Columbia, where light-skinned blacks refuse to hire blacks of dark skin, end quote. There it is. Mr. Seller, who was then the floor manager, responded with the following, quote, The gentleman read a lot which has involved personal opinions of certain individuals of the black race which have nothing to do with this bill. I may say, if there, is, if there is any discrimination against the black, 
regardless of his shade or gradation of pigmentation of his skin and employment, that discrimination would be a violation of this act. Everybody with me there? So it was then, back in 1964, when Representative Abernathy brought this to the floor and opened up that dialogue, that discussion, where he brought to the table and said, listen, would this, with the EEOC, would they have the authority to, to target or go after employers, blacks, that is, black employers in the District of Columbia, where they... Um, light-skinned black Americans refused to hire dark-skinned black Americans. 1964 gang. So for anyone that would say to you, oh, no, interracial colorism was not an issue to that degree. It was. If it wasn't, he would not have brought it up. And by the way, when I mentioned Dr. Kerr's um, book earlier, the actual name of the book is the Two Black Washingtons, The Role of Complexion in the Oral History of the District of Columbia Residents, 1863 to 1963. And it's you know, with the University of Maryland's publisher. And you must get the book and read it. So we know now that there's evidence. There was the discussion where it made two significant points. One was with um, the floor manager, Seller, clearly identified color discrimination as being a violation of Title VII. And number two, 1964, interracial color discrimination exists in the workplace among black Americans. It was there then. So if we look at this realistically, I've always said this from day one, that people perpetrating acts of colorism, I would always say it was a mental health care issue where it's it's an issue that has to be resolved where they do need, I think, some type of help to resolve or deal with the fact that they believe that the lighter skin is more superior and even in close proximity to whiteness. And you all know that prior to us even getting to this discussion, historically how anything that was black was always associated with being bad, like the black cat for bad luck. Anything white was angelic, pure, clean. Black was always associated with being dirty, unclean, whatever. So when we start looking at, you know, colorism and how it has affected black Americans from a standpoint of interracial issues, meaning within the race, black on black, Asian on Asian, Latino on Latino, you know, there's a history there. And you would think that in the millennium, some of this would not be as so much in the, in the uh, forefront as it is, but it is still there. So what I did in 2006, well, it started in 2005, um, started up my study. It was one of the first studies to investigate the occurrences of interracial colorism among black Americans in the workplace. And that was in 2006 when it was finalized. And, and published in a book. What I did, I utilized a skin color chart, and I identified it as the black skin color identification chart. And what I did, I, you know, selected the colors, <coughs> pardon me, consisted of 48 colors, 
representing the various hues of black skin tone. Those colors were categorized in the light, medium, and dark categories, and each category contained 16 different skin colors. Excuse me one second, Kate. Okay. Now, the participants who participated in the study, they were actually able to select their skin color as well as the skin color of the perpetrators. And in the end, the study confirmed the existence of interracial colorism discrimination among black Americans in the workplace, that colorism acts were committed by both light and dark skin employees and supervisors. More victims of colorism worked in the private sector and the types of colorism acts committed more often were relative to performance evaluations, promotions, and job duties. My site, myself, the Acopus 2016. I cannot understand why something is choking me, guys, so pardon me a minute. It's like a bad high pollen count today, too. That was another issue. So getting back into things. In another study conducted in 2011 by Expose, he noted that black Americans possessing various skin tones experienced or witnessed skin tone bias in the workplace. And his study also revealed that blacks believe that lighter skinned black Americans were perpetrators of colorism in the workplace. And he shared in his, you know, in, in his study, for example, one comment that was made where one of the participants noted how light-skinned females would tell darker-skinned females in the work environment to glam it up. So when we start looking at, at colorism and the color-based issues in the work environment, it, it is an issue. Now, I wrote a real awesome, and if anybody wants to buy it from me again, awesome memorandum about colorism you to use as a training guide with some of my consultants who worked with me in uh, called with Jung and Severino. And the purpose of that memorandum was to define colorism, discuss skin color discrimination in the workplace, Title VII, the Civil Rights Act of 1964, color discrimination as well as discuss the evidence required to prevail in color-based discrimination claims. It also focused in on reviewing disparate treatment. I included a legal analysis of the case law pertaining to color discrimination in the workplace. So we first looked at, you know, when I put together the memorandum, you know, overview of what colorism is in the workplace. And here's the biggest thing, guys. We know that it occurs when a distinction is made, but when it occurs in the workplace, it's identified as color discrimination. It's very rare that you'll hear them say, oh, it's colorism. They'll say color discrimination. In and of itself, as we all know, is a clear violation of Title VII because color is a protected class. We also know that historically, 
people of color were victims of colorism interracially and interracially with black Americans. And now, and here's the thing, colorism is not just a black American thing. It doesn't just happen with black people. It occurs in other groups, but more often you hear and see of it occurring in black Americans. As you noted a few weeks ago, when Dr. Elizabeth Hodge Freeman was a guest, and we talked about colorism in Brazil and how they had race and the stigma there in Brazil, how anyone who looks more black, authentically black, would know that they were only geared to go into certain work positions. They couldn't get certain jobs. But if they were fair complexion with a straighter hair texture, more Eurocentric features, they were looked upon favorably. Some of them didn't even go to school because of the color of their skin. You know, to go to college, I'm saying. So when we see that in Brazil, that even to this day, that is how things go there. Where the darker complexion, especially the black, the women there, whose hair is not straight and they do not possess Eurocentric features, they possess more Afrocentric features, how they're geared more so to certain type of jobs, the more of the blue collar level positions. Because it is that belief, of course, again, that the light skin, skin in close proximity to whiteness is more appealing, more acceptable with the straighter hair, the more the finer nose, the phenotypes that more that represent or are similar to Eurocentric is more acceptable and appealing to them than that of someone possessing Afrocentric features in the work environment. And if you want to listen to that show, that show was like two weeks ago, and it was called The Color of Love, and it talked, we talked about the Brazilian, about colorism occurring in Brazil. So here in the United States, we, well, first of all, we know that in Brazil, the stigma, we know the issues, we know why they had the preference for uh, the black Brazilians with a lighter complexion and straighter hair to take on certain workplace positions. Here in the United States, when we conducted the 2006 study, um, the research revealed at that point in time that the factors that contributed to interracial colorism discrimination occurring in the workplace, um, it was been thoroughly documented by researchers, and they included disparate treatment of dark and light complexion blacks as noted by Sims, Exposé, and myself. Education was an issue, as noted by Hunter. Gender, as noted by Hook, Sims, Exposé, and myself. Assimilation issues. I'm going I'm to stop reading the names because it's too much. Income disparities. Positions of authority. Uh, let's see what else. Self-imposed segregation. Cultural beliefs. Heritage light skin privilege, and standards of beauty. These were some of the factors that contributed to the occurrence of colorism in the work environment. So we know of those factors, and we also know that when colorism issues do occur in the workplace, there's so many things that pop up. And those claims can have include a plethora of issues. It's not limited to single now. We know the factors that we know the factors 
that actually contribute to colorism occurring in the workplace. When we start looking at the claims in the workplace, we saw job duties, performance and evaluations and promotions, pettiness, work sabotage. So judicial acknowledgement of the existence of colorism in the workplace was noted by the Supreme Court precedent in the case of Walker II in 1992. That case clearly acknowledged the existence of interracial color discrimination among black Americans in the workplace. And then it authorized the judicial system to then entertain color-based claims. That gang was a monumental decision. And it helped pave the way for color claims to be entertained by the court. Prior to that time, and as I go through the literature review, I mean, I'm sorry, the case for with you tonight, you know, this is something you need to learn about and know about and understand. Because there have been circumstances and situations where individuals, as I gave you the example with John and Steve earlier, were victimized, were victims of colorism and did not even know it, where the perpetrators of the colorism acts weren't even aware that it was a violation of Title VII. Now we all know with the realm of, within the realm of common sense it would be wrong to treat someone differently because their skin is light or dark. It doesn't always require them to have common sense. We all know that. Not everybody has it. The bottom line of it is, is that there are employees walking around who are victims, have been victimized by colorism, and they don't know it. There are so many misconceptions as to what constitutes colorism and what it is, with the most being that victims are only black and that they're dark complexion. But we know we now know that victims can be light, medium, and are dark complexioned. And it and include people from all racial groups, including white, when we talk about how colorism works. And further review of all of the literature, and it's really evolved since this, that time, revealed that colorism is so complex. And when I say that colorism is complex in nature, it's because it occurs across many dimensions and on many levels. Now, it's complex, and this is quoted from my, my book, because it's of the psychological, emotional, physical, and social um, effects, let's say traumas, that it causes the victims. And I also think that there are also psychological, emotional, physical, and social issues that I identify as PEP syndrome that the perpetrators suffer from because of the fact that they are committing these acts of colorism against others, especially in the work environment. Start seeing and there have been instances where some of the victims were so distraught over how they were treated, mainly because of the color of their skin. When we start talking about the complexity of colorism again, because it occurs interracially and interracially, because it's comprised of two distinct uh, complexes, interracial colorism complex, and the interracial colorism complex, and I go into great detail about what they are in my book. We know all about the skin color complexes that we're dealing with. Um, 
can occur consciously and unconsciously, intentionally and unintentionally. And those skin tone biases among, you know, members belonging to the same skin color group can also occur. And here's something else with, had a conversation with an old, old colleague today. And we were talking about colorism. And I actually helped him uh, write this memorandum for another case that he handled. And he's an attorney. And we talked about how when you start seeing colorism. Now, let's, let me give you an example to break this down and make it easier. Let's say we're looking at my skin color chart. And let's say we're looking under the light skin color category. So let's say we have number a skin color number one, skin color number two. One obviously is lighter than the other one. Acts of colorism have and do occur among members belonging to the light, same light skin color category that grew. Again, based on how much lighter or darker one of the party's skin color is. So, when we start talking about, excuse me, guys, when we start talking about looking at how colorism works and the reason why I identify it as being so complex is because it indeed it is. And when we start looking at how Individuals are affected by it. We start looking at the studies and getting back into my study in 2006, it was a quantitative-based study. And it revealed that interracial colorism, of course, it did exist in the workplace. Female participants of the study experienced colorism discrimination more than males. Participants, when we talk about the participants, we're looking at the victims who experienced interracial color discrimination were more often dark complexion workers. Dark complexion females committed interracial colorism acts more often than light and medium complexion females. Light complexion males committed, committed acts of colorism more often than medium and dark. Light complexion male employees and supervisors committed interracial colorism acts more than the medium and dark complexion employees and supervisors. Of course, we know the victims are more often dark workers, dark complexion workers. And what I found interesting was that dark complexion female employees and supervisors actually committed acts of interracial colorism more often than medium and light complexion employees or supervisors. So that was interesting to know. When we start looking at the case law, um, with the cases involved, you'll see exactly what I mean. There was also a moderate relationship between colorism occurring and the employment sector because with the length of employment and gender. And the most interesting um, revelation from the data was victims over the age of 40 experience colorism discriminations more than victims under the age of 40. So, of course, this is just, just for like additional studies and all these particular findings. But when we noted that the victims more often over the age of 40, 
you know, a little light bubble bell should have gone on there. Is it a generational thing? Is it because of the era they, they, they were teens or young adults in and, and some of those negative issues just stuck with them? So many questions. Now, that's enough on all of that because you guys can, can you know, read the book in there. But it was interesting to know how everything worked with the colorism in that study. But most importantly, one of the biggest questions that I posed to them, and I do hope I can find it now, it was whether or not the employers included colorism in any type of training in the work environment. And unfortunately, the response came back. It was no. More often, they wouldn't, it was the answer no. And when I conducted a 2013 study, I was, it was a sample. I believe that there, let's see, I can tell you exactly. They came back and said that colorism discussion, there was a discussion on colorism in the training materials from the work environment. 6.5% of the participants in the study said yes, that it was included, that the employees did include um, a discussion in the training material while focusing on colorism. But the other 60-something what percent said that they did not. And another percentage, I think it was 17%, 17-point-something percentage, percent said they didn't even have the type of training in the work environment. Then when they were posed with the question, if the training included um, a scenario, so to help the employees understand what colorism, what constitutes colorism, 7% said yes, the rest said no. When the question was asked, did the employee include colorism in any form of training, 8.4% said yes, 74.9% said no, 16.7% they did not know. So don't ask me why they did not know. Here's the other thing. In the 2006 study, 97 0.4% said there was no there were no diversity training programs that included any mention of colorism. So I think that it's interesting that if this one study was conducted in 2006, the next study in 2013, seven years later, the percentage is still kind of high with the 90-something percent and the 74-point-something percent of mention of colorism are providing examples of what colorism is in the training. And you know what? I always wondered this, and I, and I think this may be a point here, that perhaps it was not included because of the fact that so many just don't want to deal with it or they don't know how to explain it. And I've always told my clients, and will say this forever, you need to make sure you're including a discussion, explanation, a scenario of what colorism is what it looks like. If you don't do it, how will the employees know? And it 
could always be this also, guys. Maybe there's a fear or concern if they do mention it in the training because they know maybe it has been occurring that it would be a bigger issue to deal with and they would see more legal issues, more claims being filed. It's also the issue that I've noted in certain circumstances where there were just some individuals who did not understand how to conduct an investigation involving colorism. So that's an issue there we need to, you know, look at, talk about, because that's something else when we start looking at why we have these white colors and still an issue. Now, in a memorandum that I wrote for the consultants and training them on colorism, you know, we investigated an, an, an institution, an organization rather, and there were real colorism issues there. Now, the mere fact that colorism claims in the workplace continue to, are continuing to rise despite the EEOC's compliance manual on race and color, and that race and color manual was issued back in 2006. So if you want to know more about it in the specifics, guys, you go to the EEOC's website. You can get the compliance manual there. And that manual provides examples of color discrimination claims and directives for employers to follow. And it's so important because I must note this. When you go to the EEOC's website and you're looking at color-based claims, you know, interracial colorism claims filed by black Americans against black Americans, Asians against Asians, you can't tell the numbers there. It just gives you this, it just provides the statistics of how many killings came in. However, what I did find very interesting, what I did like to see was that the EEOC provides a clear explanation of the applicability of Title VII of the Civil Rights Act of 1964 to the term color. Specifically, it reads as follows, and I say this in quotes. Title VII prohibits employment discrimination because of color as a basis separately listed in the statute. The statute does not define color. The courts and the commission read color to have its commonly understood meaning, pigmentation, complexion, or skin shade or tone. Thus, color discrimination occurs when a person is discriminated against based on the whiteness, darkness, or other color characteristics of the person. Even though race and color clearly overlap, they're not synonymous, and they're not. Thus, color discrimination can occur between persons of different races, ethnicities, or between persons of the same race or ethnicity, end quote. And that was section 15-3 of the Race and Color Manual. So when we start talking about colorism, and guys, I have so many more notes, but we're running short of time tonight. But there are examples of, of you know, 
color discrimination in the workplace. And it's interesting to note, and I can let me give you the statistics numbers right now because I think that is so important to share with you um, so that you know the numbers and how each year the claims are increasing. So, for example, in physical year 2017, and I'm going backwards now, there were 3,240 claims. Physical year 2016, 3,102 claims. Physical year 2015, 2,833 claims. Physical year 2,756, I'm sorry, physical year 2014, 2,756 claims. Receipts, rather, of claims. Now, here's the most ironic thing. In physical year, in 2013, there were three, let me see, there were 3,146 claims that came in. And then it dropped back down in 2014 to the 2000 level, but then it's steady going back up with the all-time high now being 3,240 in the physical year um, 17. And if you go back from 1997 up to 2017, that 20-year span, those color claims have increased like by over, let's say, 300% within physical year 1997, just 762 claims were filed. So here's one thing that you can say from looking at the data and looking at the statistics. That in a 20-year period, from 1997, we saw 762 receipts of claims coming in on color. And in 2017, there were 3,240. It could be, one, that there are some real serious issues that need to be resolved. Number two, the fact that perhaps people understand and they know what colorism is, what color discrimination consists of. It could also be that we see more of a browning of America than we've, you know, as far as um, population. So there are various reasons why, which, we, you know, I'm throwing both out here. But the, mere, the bottom line of it is, is that the numbers have increased significantly over a 20-year period. So let me try and get through this really quick for you guys because it's so important because I've had so many people say to me, Doc, can you just show us and explain the colorism and how you can prevail on colorism claims in the work environment. So I'm going to skip over the section where I'm providing the um, actual case studies from my book, from Matt, from the case study guide, because I gave you one in the beginning with Stephen John, so I think you understand it. And I will provide you with one example of intraracial that's black on black or Asian on Asian, Color discrimination could be you can have a dark and a light complexion person. Persons, rather. One's dark, one's light. And one makes a distinction and treats the other one unfavorably or either favorably because of the color of their skin color. Skin interracial colorism. Now, it's important to remember, even though I'm skipping over this stuff, you can buy it in the book when it comes out. It's Important to remember that the EEOC has actually gone after employers where there have been issues of color discrimination. And 
and going things like to the colorism case law. Remember the case of Walker versus Secretary of the Treasury in IRS 1992. That case is available online. You can find it, read it. You must read it. But in that particular case, um, the courts held that Title VII conferred a cause of action for discrimination based on the differences in the shades of skin. Now, the Walker case, along with those other cases, other cases have really paved the way or the path, rather, so that people could start bringing these claims in. So when we start looking at the case law, it's a plethora of issues involving discrimination based on skin color in the workplace. Disparate treatment because of dark skin color was involved in the case of Etienne versus Spanish Lake Truck and Casino, Casino Plaza. That was a 2015 case. Significant. They used an excellent uh, four-pronged test in that particular case, which I'll talk about shortly. Cases, if you have an incident involving job duties and transfers, it's Sanders versus University District of Columbia. And if you go to the website of the Colorism Project, you'll find all of these cases listed there, with the exception of Etienne. Historically, we all know about the, um, the Applebee's case. There was another case that was really important, Morgan versus Centers for New Horizons in 2004, hostile and abusive work environment involving job segregation. There have been cases involving, you know, outrageous conduct and the infliction of emotional distress. There have been numerous issues like involving harassment, promotion issues, wrongful termination. One of the most significant cases I remember from years ago was a case involving the post office. Um, where the employees there who worked in a cage, um, one of the areas of location they referred to as being the cage. And I'm trying to find out where I put that case. And what made this case such an issue, it was because of the color written issues resulted in a hostile work environment. And the allegedly the supervisors were aware of the hostile work environment. And the case was Allen versus Porter. It was, uh, and I can give you this citation for it. It was 152, Fed 379, um, California 5, 2005. And this is the Fifth Circuit Court of Appeals. And in this particular case, the plaintiffs alleged a hostile work environment because they were required to work in the cage. And the cage was an area where they go and I guess and they sort the mail. So the co-workers made offensive comments to them with things such as, quote, look at the monkeys, close quote. Don't feed, quote, don't feed the monkeys. Someone posted a sign on the cage that said, don't feed the animals, end quote. And they would throw peanuts in the cage all four days while the employees are required to work in the cage. And based on those allegations, the, you know, the Court of Appeals, you know, determined the plaintiffs had raised a genuine issue of material fact concerning the severity and pervasiveness of the work experience. And what is so um, really bad about that particular case 
was, I believe, because of the ones who worked in the cage were the darker complexion employees. So that was a big case. Look it up online. Allen versus Porter in 2005. Interesting case. It is a must read so that you can understand. And here's another thing, everybody. There have been so many instances where individuals thought that it was okay to make jokes about someone's skin color in the work environment. And even if the person who's being made fun of laughs about it, if it offends Jane Doe, then it's a problem. It's an issue. Number one. Number two, which number one, it should even take place in the workplace. Number two is the offensive part of it. But it happens. So you have to be able to understand, sorry, what colorism is, what constitutes color discrimination in the work environment, and understand, and I really wish I had the time to go through the legal analysis and explain all this to you, but it'll be in my book so you guys can read it when it comes out. But I do want to share this with you because it's important to know that in order to prevail in a case on the color discrimination, and let's just say, for example, it involves comments in the work environment, it constitutes direct evidence, stray remarks. Now, remember the case I told you about Etienne versus Spanish Lake Truck and Casino Plaza in 2015? In that particular case, the courts employed the use of a four-pronged test to determine if those comments that were made about this particular employee. So, for example, if someone is making comments about your skin color in the workplace, the test requires these four prongs to be met. One, that it's related to the plaintiff's protected characteristic. We know that color is a protected class. Two, proximate in time to the challenge employment decision. So you have to make sure that it's there. Number three, made by an individual with authority over the challenge employment decision, like a supervisor and a manager. Four, related to the challenge employment decision. When you get a chance, look at the case at the end versus Spanish Lake Talk and Casino Plaza, LLC. It's a 2015 case. What that court found in the particular, in Etienne, was that the plaintiff's evidence met the requirements to constitute direct evidence of discrimination, along with the other charges she was bringing that she was qualified for a position, which she was not given solely based on her dark skin color, among other issues. So it's important to understand how colorism works. If you are victimized by colorism in the work environment, number one, you let the individual know to stop it, that you're offended by it. Report it to human resources. Your human resources department does not take action. Take it to the EEOC. But report it. You do not have to sit there and suffer, be traumatized, deal with all the psychological, emotional, physical, and social traumas that go along with colorism when you are a victim. So if you don't report it and you allow it to continue, there was an instance where I had a young man and a young woman both hated 
their jobs because they were treated so differently and teased about their skin color every day. By the time I arrived on the scene to conduct the investigation and get involved, both of them told me they didn't bother reporting it because they knew nothing was going to change. That they had, in fact, reported it one time to human resources who didn't do anything about it. So they figured, why bother? Why would I go back and keep complaining about something that I know that the businesses do nothing about? Now, here's the thing. When we start looking at how colorism issues are in the work environment, it's just taking me so long to get here. But I'm getting there, gang. Remember, the trauma that comes along with that psychological, emotional, physical, and social issues that you're dealing with because you've been victimized can affect your work performance. It can result in an individual's poor performance, high absenteeism, you know, no, no call, no show, being late, making mistakes, being aggressive, emotional issues or concerns. Being changing their personality behavior to such a degree where they may be nasty or rude, short-tempered, make, you know, really, really silly mistakes. And you have to remember, when someone is stuck in an environment that is not conducive to their psychological, emotional, physical, social well-being, there are going to be issues. But I think in this leaves room to discuss colorism at another level, is to look at the mental health issues associated with people who are perpetrators of colorism in the work environment especially. There is no place for color discrimination in the workforce. Remember, when you start looking at how you're being treated, whether you're dark, light, medium, whether you're silky, straight, a thin nose, a broad nose, thick lips, thin lips, wider facial um, facial features, regardless. Colorism is colorism. The color complex is even worse. Colorism complex. So, the point that I'm making here is that if you've been victimized, if someone treats you differently, if you see that you're being treated favorably or unfavorably in the work environment. And I have seen cases where a lighter complexion employee was treated unfavorably over a darker complexion employee. So it does exist. So know that Knowing that it does exist, do not let your friends, do not let the stuff that you read on the internet or Twitter or Facebook make you believe that you cannot bring a claim, file a claim, notify the employer of the fact that you've been victimized or are being victimized by colorism. And remember this. Colorism, my allergies are killing me, guys. I'm so sorry. That colorism issues don't just have to be someone saying something to you verbally. They can take a picture and hang it up. It can be a card. 
a joke. And they're referencing you in that particular card, a joke. There was an issue where one gentleman hung up a picture, and I think it was a black bear, and referenced a black woman, saying that her skin was as black as a bear's fur, and making all kinds of horrible comments about her skin color, and then had the audacity to compare her to another girl who was lighter complexion. So, here's another thing before I go. When we start looking at colorism in the work environment and black women or women of color, then we need to see more studies on this issue on these issues. Black women, in my experiences as a consultant, have been the victims more often than any other group, racial group, ethnicity, category, however you want to call it. When we see these issues and there have been situations and cases and investigations where black women are being targeted or being victimized by colorism in the work environment, And in one particular case, I had a supervisor who was hell-bent on terminating a black woman because she made a comment back and raised her voice to someone who was victimizing her because of the color of her skin and because she wore hair natural and she was heavyset. And the supervisor did not understand why this woman was on edge every doggone day. Why she would be the most pleasant person if you saw her outside of work. But the minute she walked into the work environment, unbeknownst to the supervisor, she was being harassed because of her skin color and her hair and other phenotypes. So... Of course, we all know it affected her psychologically, emotionally, physically, and socially. She became withdrawn. The mistakes were unbelievable. She would, taking care of all of her tasks and duties, whereas at one point in time, she was the top employee. She was the best on the team. And the supervisor, who pretended that they didn't know this, but... Later on, it was revealed that they did. Wanted to terminate the woman. Knowing, and I always say that he knew what was going on. And not realizing the detrimental effects of being treated in this manner in the work environment every five days a week, eight hours a day, 40 hours a week plus. When she did overtime. So she did report it, I believe. She did report the incident. Nothing was done by the supervisor. They were told to report everything to the supervisor. They didn't go to HR. So when it came time to terminate this woman and she pushed back and I stepped into the picture and I'm conducting the investigation and 
she provides me with email on top of email showing evidence that she complained to the supervisor about the treatment by the other employees who were three or four white males, I believe. He did nothing about it. At one point, he wrote back and told her to stop wearing a heart on his sleeve. Another email, he made a comment that she needed to grow up and to realize that in the real world, you will get teased. People say nasty, mean things to you and about you. But what he failed to see was that the way this woman was being treated in such an unfavorable, disparate manner had actually affected her work performance and her psychological, emotional, physical, and social well-being were really seriously on the line. And she needed to get help. So in the end, it ended up being a workers' comp case. Because of the psychological trauma she was dealing with in the work environment. In the end, of course, it settled out of court in her favor. With a harsh, harsh um, notice to the employer. Termination of the four individuals because they would not stop even after they were told to stop. But the problem here was that the supervisor was causing problem to escalate by failing to take action. So my point here to you listeners is this. If you, someone you know, family member, a friend, are being victimized by in the work environment, treated disparately or unfavorably because of the color of your skin, you know, excuse me, the texture of your hair, you know, other phenotypes. If someone is saying to you, oh, your skin is just so dark and you're so light, report it. Remember, colorism can occur. Color discrimination can be an issue with someone who is medium complexion, skin tone. You can have a light complexion person treating a medium complexion individual disparately. It could be two to three shades or one to three shades in difference of tone. It could be medium against dark, dark against medium, medium against light. Colorism doesn't occur, only occur rather, with the victims or the perpetrators being light and or dark. So get that out of your heads right now. It may be the most prominent form of colorism that you may have seen or witnessed or heard about. But to say that colorism does not occur with medium complexion people is just a statement you just don't want to say. Let's put it that way. And one other thing I want to talk to you, mention to you that I forgot, was that in the the Walker versus Secretary of the Treasury's IRS case, the Walker court noted this. It would take an ethnocentric and naive worldview to suggest that we can divide Caucasians into many subgroups, but somehow all blacks are part of the same subgroup. They are sharp 
and distinctive contrast among Native Black American people, you know, says the Supreme Sub-Saharan, both in color and physical characteristics. So remember that. Remember that in order for you to prevail in a colorism case, you have to make sure that you can provide direct or circumstantial evidence that's going to be required for you to prevail. At a later date and time, guys, I'll continue this and do a part two of this episode where I'll go more in detail of discussing the various types of colorism cases that have been brought. Um, these are not just these are not EEOC cases; these are regular court cases, superior court cases, and go over with them in detail so you understand this colorism issue being in the workplace. So I think I've given you pretty, a pretty good overview of colorism in the workplace so that you understand what it is, how it works, how you need to prevail, know that you have rights that are protected by Title VII of the Civil Rights Act of 1964. Don't be a victim. That concludes my little focus on colorism in the workplace. Let me share some announcements with you before I do when the Colorism Case Study Guidebook and that memorandum comes out, I'll make sure I announce it on the show and share it with you. So, announcement number one. Remember the call for submissions for the National Girls and Women of Color Council, Inc. Anthology, Our Voices, Our Stories, is going to close on May 31st. Remember, we're looking for essays, poetry, looking for young girls, women, all age groups to write, even men. The focus here is advancing, celebrating, embracing, and empowering girls and women of color. If you want to share an experience, a poem about something, you know, it's really poignant, to your commentary, to an essay, to next something that you're working on, submit them. The idea of this is to have a twenty a millennium anthology of the voices of girls and women of color. It's about visibility. It's about your voices. You can talk about your love, life, life in general, dealing with colorism, the work environment, education, social justice issues, the problem as you see it with this country of being a part of the change that we need, how our girls are being treated in schools, in general, the negative stereotypes, We want to hear from you, so feel free to submit. Remember, the deadline is May 31st at midnight. And if you are looking for the link, if you go to ngwcc.org, there's information there on the website on how to submit. Also, on the National Girls and Women of Color WordPress blog, which is ngwcc.thinkwordpress.com. On another note, a second announcement. The Journal of Colorism Studies published an issue, Volume 3, Issue 1, on March 30th, with a following issue coming out in May. Our next call for submissions is opening up tonight or tomorrow morning, and it's focusing on girls 
and women of color and colorism in general. Our guest editor for this particular um, thematic issue will be Ms. Carla Patton, who is our assistant editor. So start writing. Get your pens busy. For those of you who do submit to the Journal of Colorism Studies, thank you. To Ms. Vanessa Gamblett, thank you very much in the University of Pittsburgh team. To our subscribers, we have over 320 subscribers to the Journal of Colorism Studies. Thank you for subscribing, for reading. Um, We look forward to you submitting to the journal. And before I forget, the most important, that I consider the most important announcement to make today was that we check our numbers daily for visibility to see our listeners. Um, We're really concerned about our listener base, where they're coming from. And I am so happy to say, to announce today that our listener base has grown significantly where we have listeners all over the world. And I was so excited. I posted on the Complexity Talk Radio Facebook page, but we have listeners from Germany to France to the Netherlands to Brazil, Bangladesh, Trinidad and Tobago, um, Tanzania, South Africa. We have uh, what else? Nigeria, the Philippines, Poland, Turkey, the Ukraine, Ireland, Morocco, Spain, let's see, Kenya, Bermuda, Denmark, Germany, all over. So our listener base of 48,000-something listeners has grown significantly, especially since we launched Visibility. And to all of you, my listeners, thank you. Thank you for listening, for downloading the archives, and um, we're just grateful and thankful. So thank you guys for believing in visibility and for listening to us. We're going to continue to grow and expand and bring awesome topics to the table, as you know, that are not sugar-coated, that are real. And in the end, as we try to do with each show, provide realistic solutions to help solve the issues. Once again, guys, thank you for tuning in tonight. Remember... Dare to be different and dream in color, and you keep rising to the top. No matter what happens, know that you have value and worth. Let nothing or no one make you believe that you are inferior. Allow no one situation or thing you believe that it or they are superior to you. Stand firm. Believe in, you know, your convictions. Keep rising to the top, guys. Have a wonderful week. Join us next week when my guest will be Dr. Cassandra Cheney, and we'll be talking about colorism and relationships. That is the fourth episode in this Dynamics and Complexity of Colorism miniseries. The last episode of this series, miniseries, will be on Thursday the 26th. When we talk about colorism, girls and women of color, and I'll guess Dr. Elizabeth Horch Freeman and others. So we look forward to continuing to tune in. Good night, everyone. Thank you for joining us for Visibility with your host, Dr. Donna Maria Culpert. You may contact us 
at 866-829-0163. We're looking forward to you tuning in next Wednesday at 8 p.m. Eastern Standard Time. Until next week, remember to define yourself for yourself. Dare to be different and dream in color. This is Dr. Culpeth signing off for Visibility. Good night.